Romans 9, verses 14 through 18. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we again pause at the outset of this message today, recognizing our need for your um, continual guidance and help and wisdom and insight and understanding, that we would not only get the point of this text, but that we would receive it with joy and respond to it with, with love and thanksgiving and gratitude as well as that there would be the proper sort of humility that is built into us, a certain um, godly lowliness before your holiness, your greatness, your goodness. I pray that you would give us a biblical mindset with which to contemplate these realities, because we know we live in a world and in a culture that would rail against things like these being said. And meanwhile, there you have said it. And so I pray we would receive from you and that we would respond rightly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. It's quite fitting that while we're here in the midst of a discussion of Romans 9, a passage which clearly points to God's sovereignty, that God's sovereignty would orchestrate a brief pause last week, and Pastor Christian working his way through Genesis, would bring us the message that he did. Pastor Christian laid out beautifully the story of Joseph, which bears a very consistent testimony to the providence of God working in and through all events to bring to pass his purposes. This theological concept, though, is not one that is isolated. It's one that runs through all of Scripture. And there are times in which the sovereignty of God over all things is, is hinted at through portions of Scripture. I think one of the ones that I liked the most was when Pastor Christian last week mentioned Genesis 37-11, where there's a little brief side note where even though Jacob isn't exceedingly happy with Joseph's most recent dream, especially since it seems to imply that the sun and moon are going to bow down to him also, it's not wasted on either mom or dad, right? That means we're going to be bowing down to you too. And Joseph or Jacob isn't exceedingly happy about this turn of events. But then, meanwhile, we have this little phrase that he tucked this away, right? He tucked this away in his heart. It, it gives us an idea here there's a foreshadowing of coming events. And sometimes the providence of God is pictured like that through little implicit statements, little foreshadowings that come. There are other times when we read something like Genesis 50, 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about the present result to preserve many people alive. But it's not only a matter of God's sovereignty that attended to Israel's arrival in Egypt, which is what Pastor Christian's kind of setting the stage for for us, but it's also God's providence which attended to their leaving 
of Egypt, the Exodus, which we're going to be talking about today. And not only are those events the outworking of God's sovereign will, but so are all things that happen the outworking of God's sovereign will. God is accomplishing all his good pleasure, Isaiah 46.10. He works everything according to the counsel of his own will, Ephesians 1.11. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases, Psalm 115, verse 3. Now, I'm quite certain that the general truth, that God is almighty and sovereign over all things, is generally agreed upon by Christians. You won't find many professing Christians countenancing the idea that God is somehow limited in his power to accomplish what he desires. And yet, when you get to the particular applications of the general truth that God is all-powerful over all things, which all Christians in general would agree with, it's strange that when we get to particular applications of that truth, that sometimes we hear objections. And sometimes, sadly, those objections arise from our own hearts. Romans 9 is certainly one of the most hotly debated passages that fit that situation. But if God is sovereign over all, and salvation is a subset of all things, how can there be an objection to saying that God is sovereign over salvation? <laughs> if he's so sovereign over all things, and salvation is a thing, <laughs> therefore he's sovereign over salvation as well. Is the biblical teaching God is sovereign over most things? Or God is sovereign over all things except salvation? Does God exercise dominion over the natural world, but not the spiritual? Is he in control of your natural birth, but not your spiritual one? Is God, God, of, is God king of creation and history, but not king of redemption? Is that the story of the Bible? This is one of those times when I think, the answer to all of those questions is so patently obvious that it even sounds strange asking the questions. So why is there an objection to God's sovereignty when it comes to salvation and condemnation? Certainly it has at least something to do, I believe, with human psychology, especially in days like ours. Our culture supremely values human autonomy that I am a law unto myself. I am the determiner of my own destiny. So anything that confronts that idea is met with resistance. We're not surprised to find that, that from the surrounding lost world, they wish to live lives without God's interference or God's input or God's commands or what God has to say about anything. As a matter of fact, they would love to live a godless eternity. That's what they're after. It doesn't exist. They won't have it now or then, after they die. There is no such thing as a godless eternity. God is present now, and it will be present forever. But it's not all that surprising that lost people would rather not have God's interference, would rather not have God's input. Meanwhile, while they even rebel against him, the very breath in their lungs is only there by God's provision. But the world system that we live in has subtle influences on how we think and how we feel. And I, I do believe a lot of that influence is subtle. We sometimes don't pick up on how we're picking up on the surrounding cultural ideals. But this is one of those matters which is opposite of subtle. You come to Romans 9, there's nothing subtle about this passage. It confronts us head on. It's like, you know, 
You're not, we're not dealing with, you know, oh, there's a, a slight, you know, flurry out there. It's like hail coming down, like, you know, the size of boulders, that kind of thing, right? This is an inescapable situation. This, there's nothing subtle about this passage. This passage immediately puts to test underlying, underlying conceptions and even feelings that we have deep down about the nature of things and the world that we live in and how things are headed, where they're headed, and who's in charge of all of those things. You see, I think part of the thing that confronts us as Christians living in the United States today is that we have tremendous amounts of opportunities and freedoms. We, we have no idea just how much freedom we enjoy every day. But because of that, I think sometimes that leads us to false conclusions about just how free we really are. It's easy to begin to think that we're the ones choosing our own destiny, that we're behind the wheel of life. And so it's easy to flop into believing that even my eternal destiny is decided by me. I'm in charge of that. But here's the question. What do you... What does someone base that belief upon? How, how do you come to a conclusion about who's in charge of those things? No matter how we feel about the world or what our perceptions of our place within the world is, we have to ask the fundamental question, what does the word of God reveal? Simply, more simply stated, what does God say? And it's not going to do us any good to query our own minds or phone a hundred friends or even taking a national poll. All of that amounts to just pooling ignorance when we speak about the purposes and plans of God. This is why Romans, when you get to Romans 11 eventually, we read this in verses 33 and following. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? In other words, you cannot delve into the mind of God. The only hope you have of knowing the mind of God is if God chooses to reveal it to you. And wonder of wonders, God has chosen to reveal a great deal to us. And often the problem is that we just don't want to receive what he's revealed. This really is just a matter of asking, do we trust what God has told us or not? Because God is not silent on this subject. Are our beliefs founded upon God's word or are they founded upon our feelings or about cultural um, conditions? It's interesting to know that Paul was not bashful in his approach. He doesn't beat around the bush here. In response to the hypothetical objector, which again, as we're reading through this text, right, we understand where the objection comes from. Well, well is that fair? doesn't seem just. He loved Jacob and hated Esau before they had done anything good or bad, before they had been born, before they, what? That doesn't seem fair. And notice that he doesn't back away from it. Instead, he just starts quoting scripture. In response to the hypothetical objector, Paul just appeals to scripture, and so must we. Last time we were here in Romans 9, we noted the first half of Paul's defense of God's righteousness. Because he, he rightly surmises that people are going to have issues with both sides of this. There's going to be some people who object to the idea that God loved Jacob. <laughs> Why love him? We talked about this last time. Because throughout this section, remember, there's been examples that he's been giving where God chooses some and rejects others. He chose Isaac and rejected Ishmael. He loved Jacob and he hated Esau. God's promise to redeem a chosen people didn't extend to every physical descendant of Abraham, but only the elect, only those chosen by him. 
But does this selection by God give grounds for a charge that God is conducting an injustice? He's engaged in unjust behavior because he chose Jacob and he didn't choose Esau. The answer that was given to us in 914, may it never be. In verses 15 and 16, Paul appeals to God's declaration to Moses in Exodus 33, 19, where God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, Moses. I'll proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I'll have compassion on whom I show compassion. In other words, fundamental to the character, the name of God, is that God chooses whom he wishes to be compassionate and merciful toward. In other words, God is under no obligation to save anyone. And certainly not everyone. Compassion and mercy cannot be demanded as a matter of justice. This is a categorical misunderstanding. If you are owed it, then it's a matter of justice. But you are not owed this. It's a matter of grace. Something you don't deserve. Something you haven't earned. We looked at Jesus' parable in Matthew 20 along those lines. And we also considered an analogy of a governor, um, you know, offering pardon to a convicted criminal on death row. And if he offers pardon to one criminal, that doesn't make it an injustice for him to not offer it to all criminals on death row. No one would say, hey, how dare you do that? You owe it to me too. No, no one was owed it. The fact that anyone got it is just a display of grace and mercy. It's not a matter of justice. As a matter of fact, you don't have mercy and grace if it can't be free. If it's owed, it's just another matter of justice. There isn't a category for it otherwise. You see, there's a categorical, mis- categorical misplacement. To say that God is unjust for not showing mercy to everyone is to make mercy then an obligation, which it's not. So there is Paul's answer to God's peculiar love for Jacob. But what of God's hatred for Esau? What are we to make of God's refusal of Ishmael? What of God giving people over to sin? What of God hardening the human heart? So today we move from the doctrine of election, which was last time, to perhaps if there was a more hated doctrine to be found, it would be this one, the doctrine of reprobation, the doctrine of condemnation. If it's hard for people struggling with the idea that God could choose some for salvation, it's even harder for people to struggle with the idea of God choosing people for condemnation. So how does Paul explain God's righteousness as it touches God's activity toward Esau, towards Ishmael, towards men like him? This morning, pun intended, in a hard sermon, we'll be talking about a hard thing. It's also a hard thing for, certainly if you're lost, there's like no category for this. For saved people, we recognize the authority of God's word, and we're going to wrestle through this and receive from him what he's told us. I want to note two bedrock facts in Paul's defense of God's righteousness here. What we see is that the answer is very similar to the one that we were offered last time. You're going to see a lot of comparison with this answer to the one that he gave regarding God's election. God's word clearly manifests that God is free to mercy as he wishes, as well as being free to harden as he wishes. As we noticed last week, Paul immediately points to the scripture to defend the position that he's just articulated 
Because at the end of the day, the standard of truth is not our own thoughts. It is not our own feelings. How dare we think we sit in judgment over the Almighty? We do not stand in judgment over him. He stands in judgment over us. Our ideas of justice and what is right and wrong derive from him. So we have to ask him to guide us in this matter. So point one, the solid truth. We see here God's word. I want you to notice three things here. First of all, in verse 17. First of all, I want you to note with me the grammatical structure. The grammatical structure to be noticed. As you compare verses 15 and 16 with verses 17 and 18, you'll see a parallel structure becomes obvious. Verse 15, for to Moses he says, verse 16, so then. Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, verse 18, so then. See what he does in both cases? He quotes scripture and then makes a conclusion. The Bible says this, God says this, the scripture says this, therefore this. Both of these are undergirding verses 13 and 14. God is completely free to love whom he loves and hate whom he hates. Why? Scripture. Explanation. Why? Scripture. Explanation. You mean God can love who he wants? Yes, he can. Scripture. Explanation. You mean God can hate who he hates and harden who he wants to harden? Yes. Scripture. Explanation. Do you understand that the principle that's being put forward here is one for us to follow suit in? The pattern is, quote scripture, summarize what the truth is there, and live by it. Acknowledge it, receive it, rejoice in it. We never do the same thing. It's just as Ezra and the Levites stood in the presence of God's people and read from God's word in Nehemiah 8.8, 8, and were told that they translated to give the sense so the people understood the reading. You understand that's what we're doing today? We're just following that long line tradition of people looking to the word of God, translating and others, interpreting to give the sense of it that people would understand it and receive it. But again, don't miss that Paul considers this quotation to settle the matter. He does not engage in a deep philosophical dive with people. It's not that you can't have discussions like that. It's just for Paul, he's like, if you want to just cut to the chase, what does the Bible say? That's all I need. I understand this doesn't fit well with your psychology. It doesn't fit with how you feel. It doesn't give you a warm fuzzy today. The question is, what's the truth? What has God revealed? What has God told us? Will you trust what God has said? Now, there are a great many things that the Lord has chosen not to reveal. There are mysteries still. And in such cases, we just don't know. And we can say that. I don't know the answer to that. What Paul does here is he says, the Bible does say something about this. This is what it says. Therefore, that's the conclusion. Done. You see, just as Israel was humbled in the wilderness being fed by manna, that they might learn that man does not live by bread alone, but by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord, see Deuteronomy 8.3, which Jesus quotes during Satan's temptations of him in the wilderness. So we must be reminded that the Christian life really boils down to simple trust in God. I mean, really, when it comes right down to it, that's why the, the youngest among us, if they hear the gospel and they believe in Christ, they can have Genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. When it boils right down, it's not all your philosophical trappings. It's not all the things you know. It's not the degrees that you've attained. It's not the seminary time you've spent. It's not the number of Bible studies you've gone through. You know, it's the books you've read. 
It's, do you trust God? Like, do you love Jesus? It's very simple. Simple trust in God. When you face life's trials, when you go through tribulations and troubles, when you're struggling with questions and doubts and anxieties and worries, what is your habit to do in that moment? Is it to run to Oprah or Dr. Phil or find some psychological thing? Or is it first scripture? What does Bible have to say to me? What does God tell me? Has the word of God talked on this subject? Are there answers for me here? Are there, is there direction for me? Is there sustenance for me? Is there encouragement for me to be had? Are there promises for me to meditate upon? This should be the continual habit of our life. And I just love how when Paul here is dealing with perhaps one of the most difficult questions that are posed, he just simply quotes scripture and then says, so then. So then. There's the grammatical structure. Let's consider next the historical context to be kept in mind. Having just quoted a particularly poignant moment in Moses' life from Exodus 33, right? So ver- previous verses, when he's defending God's right freedom to mercy whom he weren't mercies, he quotes from Exodus 33 when God is revealing himself in a very special way to Moses on the mountain. And so... It's not all that surprising that then Paul goes, well, actually, speaking of which, if you want an example of God's hardening activity, that same story gives us a lot of material. And so what he quotes next is Exodus 9, verse 16, where we read, but indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name throughout all the earth. Who is he talking to there? There the Lord is addressing Pharaoh. He's saying, I have allowed you to remain for this purpose that I might show my power and proclaim my name through the earth. Now, this brings to our recollection the Exodus account. God's command to Pharaoh was what? Let my people go. Release them. Release them from bondage. Release them from slavery. And this command was one that Pharaoh stubbornly refuses to obey. He clutches on to Israel despite the devastation that God wrecks upon his country. Sometimes this is one of those things where the Exodus story is so well known that sometimes our familiarity with it can cause us to like lose a little bit of wonder. Sure, the first time you heard about it when you were a child, it was like really cool and amazing. And then the more times you hear it, the more it just becomes kind of like white noise almost. And it's sad that that happens. I want to just encourage you to think for just a minute. Think about the, the nature of the plagues that were visited to Egypt. How much of that would be required for you to go, I'm dealing with somebody way bigger than me? You know what? Even if I don't really want to let them go, I don't really want to see what's next. Notice that this whole situation is set up by God talking about what he's going to do, his purpose in the Exodus events. It's been remarked by many that The text of Exodus indicates that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, which is true. Scripture does include that. I'll look at it with you in a moment. And that the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, of his own heart, is mentioned prior to the statement where it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. The point that's being made by some who would argue this direction, why they're making a point of it, is they're saying all that God ends up doing is just 
responding to Pharaoh's hardness. So really, the prime actor here is Pharaoh, and now God is responding to his hardness and hardening it further when, after Pharaoh had already hardened it. So God's just responding to sinful man's actions. Notice that this sounds a lot like how they want to do it with election two. God sees that you would believe and based upon your belief chooses you. Not that he chose you from the foundation of the earth and worked through all the circumstances and orchestrating the moment in which you would be converted and brought into his family. That it was all from beginning to end his work. Notice here, if you believe that, then the corollary to that is, well, I guess he's also sovereign and orchestrating all events for lost people too. But if you deny it with election, you'll certainly deny it with reprobation. But if you accept it with election, you have to accept it with reprobation. So they've made this, this point. So for a moment, I just want to do a quick survey of Exodus here. And let's look at all the times in which Pharaoh's heart is being referred to. The first occurrence of the Lord hardening Pharaoh's heart, where it says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, is found in Exodus 9.12. It says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. After 9.12... Yeah, if you want to go there, you can, you can flip through these as, we, as I t- explain them. 10.1, again, the Lord says, I have hardened his heart. 10.20, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. 10.27, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. 11.10, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Then later, it says in uh, chapter 14, when we're coming up to the crossing of the Red Sea, again it says, thus I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And then 14.8, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, when's the first occurrence in which Exodus says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart? That happens in 8.15. When Pharaoh saw there was relief, He hardened his heart. This is followed by two more occurrences. In 832, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And in 934, Pharaoh sinned and hardened his heart. So right now, we've got a lot more times where it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But we do have three occasions in which Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And note, chapter 8 does come before chapter 9. Chapter 8, the first time where we see Pharaoh hardened his heart. That happened before chapter 9, where it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. You're actually having it happening twice in chapter 8, 15 and 32, and both of those happened before 9-12. And then the third time of Pharaoh hardening his own heart happens after 9-12. Okay, but the first two occurrences that we have happen before it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But let me also point out two further pieces of information. So chapter 8, verse 15 is preceded by a couple of other things. Go back to chapter 4, verse 21, where the Lord indicates to Moses what his intention is from the very start. He tells him, I want you to go to Moses. You're going to ask, you're going to demand to let my people go. And guess what? Pharaoh's not going to let him go. And he doesn't only say that. He says, I will harden his heart so that he will not let my people go. So he's telling Moses, I want you to go tell him, let my people go. But guess what? I'm going to be hardening Pharaoh's heart so that he won't let him go. Can you imagine being given that mission? I want you to go to someone and tell them this, but I'm going to make sure they don't listen to you. You see why Moses, I mean, Moses is already stuttering about, right? You're like, oh, I can't speak, blah, blah, blah. And now you're giving me this impossible mission? 
tell me to go tell Pharaoh to do something that you're working behind the scenes if in his heart to make him not receive? Notice that where that happens, though, chapter 4. Does chapter 4 happen before chapter 8? Yes. 8's before 9, but 4's before 8. Also, chapter 7, verse 3, again the Lord says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. We have two occasions where the Lord tells Moses what he's going to do with Pharaoh before Pharaoh ever is described as having hardened his own heart. The other thing I want to mention is that we also have a third type of hardening of Pharaoh's heart, and that are what are called the passive occurrences. But what we mean by this is there are occasions where Pharaoh's heart is described as being hard or was hard. The passive voice is being utilized, which leaves open the question to, uh, as to who's the actor involved. Who's the one doing the hardening, right? Because when you have Pharaoh hardened his own heart, oh, Pharaoh's the actor. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Oh, God's the actor. Pharaoh's heart was hard. <laughs> or Pharaoh's heart was being hardened. Who, who's doing that? And what's fascinating is that three of the five times that that happens happened before 8.15, before the first time it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So 7.13, yet Pharaoh's heart was hardened. 7.14, Pharaoh's heart is stubborn or hard. 7.22, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. All three of those happened before 8.15, where it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And then down 8.19, it says, but Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And then chapter 9, verse 7, the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. So we have five occasions in which his heart was hardened, in which we have to then supply who is the one doing the hardening. Here's a couple summary conclusions from that quick survey. By the way, can I just pause? This is why sometimes reading bigger swatches of scripture is helpful for different reasons, right? I mean, we're here in Romans, you're like, how dare you talk about bigger swatches of scripture when you're doing two verses? Um, so yes, yes, yes. So I admit, I admit, I, uh, we're kind of micro details here in Romans 9. But we do have to still do the zoom out, right? We have to consider what's the bigger picture here. And I think if you just read one chapter of Exodus, you don't pick up on how many times Pharaoh's heart has been talked about. You might not pick up on it as, as easily, as readily. But when you read it all in one sitting, you're like, oh, wow, there's a lot of discussion about Pharaoh's heart. So what are some summary conclusions? Number one, prior to any indication of either Pharaoh hardening his own heart or God hardening Pharaoh's heart, is God's purpose to harden Pharaoh's heart. That has to be taken into account. So before any of that happens, back in chapter 4, chapter 7, God's already telling Moses, go talk to him, I'm hardening his heart. Secondly, the first indication of Pharaoh's hardening his own heart, 815, is before the first explicit statement that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, 9.12, but we're told in 7.13, 7.14, and 7.22 that Pharaoh's heart was already being hardened and was stubborn. We have to supply the actor in bringing to pass this action or this condition, and based upon the earlier statements of God's activity, I would argue that it is God who is behind the activity of Pharaoh's heart being hardened. But again, that could be objected to by someone who believes from the other perspective. But the point that I'm making is there's already a set for that. And what starts it all off is God saying, I'm going to harden his heart. And then it says, and his heart was hardened, and his heart was hardened, and his heart was hardened. God, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So we have, we have all of these descriptions being given there. 
No matter how you go with the precise de description here, Pharaoh hardening his heart, God hardening it, and it being hard are all interwoven in the text. That's another observation. So one moment it says Pharaoh's hardening it, next moment God's hardening it, next moment was hard, then Pharaoh hardened it, then God hardened it, God hardened it, God hardened it. Oh, it was hard. Yeah. So we, we have, they're all also woven together. I think which argues towards the idea that these descriptions are not at odds with one another. They're different ways of viewing God's unfolding purpose. Depending upon the perspective that you take at the moment, you could say Pharaoh was hardening his heart, but behind the scenes of all of that, God's the prime mover. I mean, I'm sure that Pharaoh felt himself to be the master of his own destiny, don't you think? Do you think he's like, oh, well, I'm hardening my heart because actually God's doing it right now. No way. <laughs> Pharaoh's owning all of that, right? He's like, I'm not letting any of these people go. I mean, I don't like these consequences, but once the consequences left, like, ah, actually, I think, I'll, I think I'll hold on to the people instead of letting them go. But the Lord made clear to Moses that Pharaoh was really fulfilling God's purposes, even though he was totally unaware of the fact. This is the point I want to make. There's a lot of times in which I think people think that they're just, you know, I'm just a lone ranger. I'm just out doing my own thing. Do you know what's really behind all of that stuff? MacArthur said this, Pharaoh assumed that certainly within his own realm, everything he said and did was by his own free choice to serve his own human purposes. But the Lord made clear through Moses that Pharaoh was divinely raised up to serve a divine purpose, a purpose of which the king was not even aware Yes, and obviously not even not just unaware of it, but would be opposed to it, right? The last thing Pharaoh, king of Egypt, wants to do is declare Yahweh king of the universe. He thinks he's acting for himself, and God tells Moses before it all happens, I'm going to be the one doing this. Here's a good reminder to us that just because we creatures don't perceive that God is at work doesn't mean that he isn't. Just because you can't trace his hand at the moment, just because you can't see how it fits into a bigger plan, doesn't mean that he's not at work. I think Christian's sermon last week reiterated this point. Joseph's brothers weren't intending the preservation of life. They, they hated Joseph. They hated his dreams. They didn't like the favoritism dad showed to him. They plot to murder him. Then a brother steps in like, well, we shouldn't do that. Let's just throw him in a pit. And he's like, maybe I can get him out later. Then see, Ishmaelites going by. Well, let's not just leave him in the pit. Let's sell him off into slavery. I can tell you the one thing they weren't thinking. You know what? We should make sure this guy gets to Egypt because there's a famine coming a long time from now, and he's going to save the world and our own bacon too. So let's, 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 let's help him on. Let's advance him in his journey, you know? It's not at all what they're after, right? You see, what they're intending for evil, God uses for good. To preserve lives and bring to pass his glorious purposes. I would argue, what, what, how do we describe the situation where God's sovereign over all things, yet men are responsible for their actions? The, the, the fancy term for it is called compatibilism. And, and all that means is that the outworking of God's sovereign plan is not at odds with men taking actions. They do, and they're responsible for the actions they take. It could be rightly said to be Pharaoh's sinful hardening, for it was, and he was responsible for it, was nonetheless the fulfillment of God's plan, his hardening work. Greg Beale explains, God was the ultimate cause of all the hardening actions throughout Exodus 4 through 14, so that at no time was Pharaoh's volition independent of Yahweh's influence when he hardened his heart. 
This may be especially significant. Listen to this part. I appreciate Beale's comment here. This may be especially significant since the hardening may be viewed as a polemic against the Egyptian idea of Pharaoh's deity and the belief that Pharaoh's heart was the all-controlling controlling factor of both history and society. Know what's going on here. This is a really great insight. I'll, I'll mention it in a few minutes here. When we list out the rest of God's purposes regarding the Exodus account, among the things that are listed in Exodus is that God is coming after the gods of Egypt. The particular plagues that he leashes, unleashes are purposeful plagues on a lot of the Egyptian deities. You think the sun is a god? I'll darken it. The sun is my creation. It's not a god. You've got gods that look like gnats and frogs and all that. Have a bunch of them. Try to pray to your god that looks like a frog. He won't help you. You think the Nile is a god? <laughs> I'll turn it to blood. You think Pharaoh himself is a god? I'm in control of his heart. It's like streams of water in my hands. Certainly, Pharaoh's firstborn son will be the next for godhood. I can put him to death. Beale is right here. I think even this indication early to say, I'm the one hardening Pharaoh's heart is itself a slam against Pharaoh. It's as if you were to go up to the president of the United States and you know what? Every decision you make ultimately is under God's sovereignty. And he's going to work it towards his purposes. You're not the chief of everything. You've got limited, borrowed time. <laughs> Some amount of authority. God's in charge. It's isn't effect. Ah, no, says the Lord. I'm the prime mover. I've appointed Pharaoh. I've, and I'm, I'm hardening his heart for the drama to unfold. I have a purpose to fulfill, and it will come to pass. You got another place you can look at this in the New Testament to see compatibilism. I think that uh, Acts 4 is a great place for this because there's a description, description there about Jesus' crucifixion. And Peter proclaims that in this city, gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So notice here, all of the wretched things done to Jesus were just really fulfilling what God's purpose was to happen to Jesus. This wasn't a surprise. This wasn't even just happenstance. This was the very plan of God. And those men are guilty for their sin, the rejection of Christ, the crucifixion of the Son of God. Guilty, guilty, guilty. And yet all the perfect unfolding of God's sovereign plan. Is there mystery to this? Absolutely there is. But I'll tell you what we can't do. We can't remove the mystery. You're wrong to remove man's responsibility. The Bible says you are. You're also wrong to remove God's sovereignty. You have to hold them both. So why does, of all the places that Paul could have looked in Exodus, why does he pick 9.16? Why that verse to make the point? Well, here's the theological principle to be maintained. Here's the theological principle. Paul's quotation uses a slightly different verb than the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So there's a lot of times when biblical scholars will compare what does, when Paul quotes, or any New Testament writer quotes the Old Testament, because obviously they're writing in Greek, right? And they're quoting the Old Testament, which is in Hebrew in general, some Aramaic, but mostly Hebrew. And so what they'll do a lot of times, is they'll compare what does Paul say Exodus 9.16 says, and what does the Greek Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament say? And it's just kind of interesting comparisons that happen sometimes. But what is fascinating is that the LXX translates it with allowed to remain. 
a different Greek verb, which sounds kind of like what I read from the NAS from the Old Testament, which is possibly that the NAS is translating the Old Testament in light of what they see the LXX translating the Old Testament with. It's a bit of a scholarly debate about how, how to translate the word that's there. But for this reason, some have argued that the point being made in Genesis is different than the point that Paul's trying to make. Some have posited that the Exodus statement is not about um, you know, God raising up Pharaoh for something, but preserving Pharaoh in the midst of the ex- actions to come. In other words, some would argue God's actions towards Pharaoh were benevolent. He's like preserving his life. He's helping him out in the midst of all the troubles. I think failure to read the entire book of Exodus, much less the, the point that Paul's trying to make here, that doesn't even fit here with what he's trying to say. But just to have said, there are some people who have said that. And there's some people who go so far as to say, Paul has misquoted here. Paul is wrong. We should excise this portion from Scripture. I just want to show you the lengths to which some people will go to just remove what the Bible says very, very plainly. Don't be one of those people. It's a very different thing to say, I disagree with the interpretation of this text. Okay, we're going to have some disagreements. Don't be a person with penknife in hand trying to remove Scripture, Right? Whether or not Jefferson ever did that, Steve Kemper. Um, the debate about that. Um, whether or not anybody ever did that. Don't be a person that does that. We're not whiting out scripture. We're not, we're not just removing verses from the Bible. We're interacting with it. We're doing our very, very best to receive what God has said. The Hebrew word in 9.16, I believe, communicates the idea of causing to stand or to take a stand or to oppose. Paul's choice of verb here is raised up. And I think it's getting at the key concept in the Exodus narrative. God places Pharaoh precisely where he meant to. He ensured that Pharaoh would respond the way that Pharaoh did. He appointed Pharaoh to his position, and he ensured the ensuing Exodus would go precisely as God intended it to go. Pharaoh's refusal to let God's people go was divinely planned. It was orchestrated. It was enacted. It was fulfilled by God. We've already seen in the context of Exodus that Pharaoh's over-hardening heart, or ever-hardening heart, is represented in these various ways. But the prime mover behind all of it is God himself. Why? Because Pharaoh is not the ultimate king. God is. But why was God hardening Pharaoh's heart? Well, the reason is given to us in 9.16. This, I think, gives explanation as to why Paul quotes this verse of all of the Exodus narrative. Why this? Because here we're told two reasons why God did all of this. Number one, in order to show you my power. And number two, in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. There it is. To make a display of my power and to proclaim my name through all the earth. If you read the rest of Exodus, you'll find some other little purpose statements. They're like little breadcrumbs throughout the Exodus narrative. For example, you can go to Exodus 7.3 and, and read this. That I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. Why did he harden his heart? Because he wanted to show more signs. You see, if, Harden, if, if Pharaoh's heart softens and he releases them, no more context for more signs. He wants to multiply the signs. He wants there to be ten plagues. Not eight, not five, not four, ten. He says in Exodus 7, 5, that the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. There's a further reason. That their gods, next, next uh, we can say it down in Exodus 12, 12, against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. He wants to show the gods to be false, himself to be true. And he knows how stubborn and pig-headed we are. Sometimes we need more than one, right? Next time some, you know, atheist says, well, if, you know, if a lightning bolt struck that tree right now, I would believe in God forever. And like, 
yeah, if that was to actually happen, they'd ask for another lightning bolt, right? It's this kind of thing, right? The, the, what, what evidence are, do you require? Notice that God says, I'm going to execute judgments against all the gods of Egypt, Exodus 20, 12, 12. Also, we could say this, it's also a pedagogical um, reality. He wants this to be something that future generations will teach their children about God as a result of those events. See Exodus 10, 1 and 2, that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I made a mockery of the Egyptians, how I performed my signs among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So notice, he does what he does that the Egyptians might know that he's the Lord. He does what he does that the Israelites might know that he is the Lord. And they'd give them some really good material for Bible stories later on, right? Did it work? We're talking about it today, aren't we? Anybody ever heard about the Exodus in Sunday school classes as a kid? Seemed to work. You see, in Exodus 14, 17, the Lord says, I will be honored through Pharaoh and all of his army, through his chariots and horsemen. Notice how the Lord receives honor from the chariots and horsemen. If they won't bow the knee to him, he'll crush them. In crushing them, he receives honor. He shows himself to be God. God could have resolved the events of Exodus more quickly through softening Pharaoh's heart, or he could have just destroyed Pharaoh earlier in the process. But it wouldn't have given him as much opportunity to show his power and make his glory known. That's what he's after. And by the way, we know that he showed his glory and made his power known. We have evidence in this, number one, that we're talking about it still to this day. But we have some, some immediate results of that in that area. In the Song of Moses, Moses sings in Exodus 15, the people have heard, they tremble. Anguish has gripped the inhabitants of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom are dismayed. The leaders of Moab, trembling, grips them. The inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. You know what Moses is seeing on the far side of the Jordan? <laughs> He's like, everybody's hearts are melted before the Lord. When the spies come into Jericho and Rahab greets them, Rahab says to the spies, I know that the Lord has given you the land. The terror of you has fallen on us. A bunch of slaves? A bunch of slaves in Egypt? Terror has fallen on these? What? Because they had heard the works of Yahweh. We heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Shihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. You see this? Word is traveling with the power of God and people who aren't even connected with Israel are going, he's God, he's Lord, he's over all things. The Gibeonites who tricked the Israelites also mentioned their knowledge of what God had done in Egypt in Joshua 9.9. Your servants have come from a very far country. Remember they faked that? <laughs> they brought like tattered wineskins and ripped up their clothing like, let's make it look like we're far away. And they, say, they say, because the fame of the Lord your God, for we have heard the report of him and all that he did in Egypt. Psalm 105, Psalm 135, reminisce on the events of the Exodus and use them as opportunities to praise. There's love endures forever. You know, that song comes out of Psalm 135 and it's a reminiscence of all the things that God has done and among them the Exodus account. Stephen recounts the Exodus in his sermon in Acts 7.36 when he's recounting the, Israel's history. How can you not mention the Exodus, right? 
It's like, it's like, how do you talk about the United States without the Revolutionary War? Like, how do you do that? Like, this is, like, the Exodus is just so much the, at the heart of the um, Israelite story. You see, what God did in the Exodus deliverance from Egypt left a deep impression on the whole world, one that's even being retold to this very day. Notice that even negative events serve to advance God's good purpose, demonstrating his power and magnifying his name. So what conclusion are we to draw from the Exodus? This is my point two. It goes a little bit quicker. Here's the foundational reality, God's freedom. So the solid truth upon which rests all of our belief and standards and behavior is God's word. The foundational reality that's being taught to us in this passage is that God really, truly is free. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, there is such a thing as true free will. You don't have it. God does. God has it. He does all that he pleases. This is a restatement of what's already been said in Romans 9.16. Not the man willing, not the man running, but on God who has mercy. Not your willing, not your doing, but God who has mercy. Romans 9, 11, and 12, twins not yet born, hadn't done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to him, the older shall serve the younger. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Notice that Paul has not backed away from the fundamental premise that he's putting, for, putting, uh, that he's putting forward here. He's putting forward here. Mercy is not extended on the basis of merit. It is not a matter of man's inward desires or his outward accomplishments. Mercy is purely an act of God's utterly free choice. And he is free to show mercy, and he's free to not. God is free to choose to do whatsoever he wills. God cannot be manipulated. He cannot be coerced into showing mercy. It is a matter of sovereign choice. The problem with the objection to God's choosing some and not all is that it's an appeal to justice, but it is not on the basis of justice that God chooses to show mercy, but rather on the basis of grace. Categorical difference. Okay, that's the point from last time. Look at this next part. So he repeats that in verse, 16, uh, verse 18. He has mercy on whom he desires, right? And then the next phrase, and he hardens whom he desires. So notice now what we're doing. We're going for a particular case of Pharaoh, and now he's saying, let's generalize the principle. It's not just Pharaoh whom God hardens the heart of. Now, we don't have the same kind of um, clarity, right? Like, I can't look over and go like, oh, that person is actively being hardened by God. I, 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 th that kind of clarity I don't have apart from Scripture, right? So we can look to Pharaoh and go, that's absolutely the case of that. But the point here is this. The God who shows mercy is also a God who hardens. And he can harden whom he wills. Now, I, as I mentioned at the very beginning of this sermon, while there are objections to election, I think the real vitriol is usually directed against this idea, the idea of reprobation, sometimes called double predestination. To be hardened is to be made spiritually insensitive or to become stubborn. The verb that's used here, this is the only time it happens in the book of Romans, but there's the noun form of the word happens in Romans 2.5, where we're told because of your stubbornness, that would also be translated hard-heartedness and unrepentant heart. You are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. 
What is reprobation? It is God's eternal purpose to pass by certain specific individuals in the bestowment of special grace, ordaining them to everlasting punishment for their sins. That's William Hendrickson's definition. 1 Peter 2, verses 7 and 8, talks about those who've rejected the stone, um, which has become the chief cornerstone. They've stumbled over the rock of offense. Speaking of Jesus, right? So they've rejected Christ. But then it, listen to what it says at the end of this passage. It says, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. So disobeying God's word. But notice, and to this doom they were also appointed. To this doom they were also appointed. So notice, there we have them compatibilism yet again. God has appointed their doom, and yet they're disobedient to the word. They're, they're responsible for their actions, and yet it is also true that they were appointed to this doom. Proverbs 16.4, the Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. Even the wicked for the day of evil. He has made for his own purpose. He created Pharaoh. He made Pharaoh. He brought up Pharaoh. He, saw the, he made sure that Pharaoh got the education he got, that he was raised in the home that he had, was in. He made sure that Pharaoh was in place when all this went down. He made sure that Pharaoh's heart would be hard such that he would hold on to the Israelites and more plagues would be visited on Egypt. He hardened Pharaoh's heart such that he would chase after the Israelites into the middle of the, the bottom of the Red Sea where then they would be destroyed, him and all of his army. And again, I've mentioned over the past a couple of times with you, I've made a point out to our longer confession. Uh, again, I'll just say it one more time. Look up chapter 2 of eternal, uh, God's eternal decree and look at sections 5, 6, and 7. For the sake of time, I'm just going to read section 7. Listen to what it says there. The rest of mankind God was pleased according to the unsearchable counsel of his own will, whereby he extends or withholds mercy as he pleases for the glory of his sovereign power over his creatures to pass by and to ordain them to dishonor and wrath for their sin to the praise of his glorious justice. I think those are just a summary of trying to get at what Romans 9 is talking about. Now, having said all of that, I think that uh, Doug Moo provides a, a good reminder to us in this. So I, wanna, I mentioned Moo and I'm going to mention White, and then we're going to wrap this up. Moo says this, without pretending that it solves all of our problems, we must recognize that God's hardening is an act directed against human beings who are already in rebellion against God's righteous rule. Pause here for a minute. If you think the picture is, Pharaoh's this really great guy, and then God just, you know, capriciously visits him with iniquity, just makes him do all kinds of awful things, you have a bad picture of the situation. Continue. God's hardening does not, then, cause spiritual insensitivity to the things of God. It maintains people in the state of sin that already characterizes them. God's mercy is given to those who do not deserve it. His hardening affects those who already, by their sin, deserve condemnation. Goes on. Um, oh, another statement. While the text here emphatically declares that God hardens whom he wishes, let's remember the condition of fallen man before God. You know, in Pharaoh's case, we're not talking about a gentle, kind, godly man who is now forced to, to act in reprehensible ways by a capricious God. All of that is false. Rather, as James White comments, Pharaoh was a pagan idolater, justly under the wrath of God, whose every breath and heartbeat was his only as God extended mercy to him. His blackened, sin-filled heart was constantly being reined in by God's common grace so that he was not nearly as bad as he could have been. He did not have the first desire to submit to God or do right. To say that Pharaoh could not resist is to assume he would ever want to. 
And this is the problem with the human heart and will. Yeah, you're, you can say it this way. Luther would say the bondage of the will. Jonathan Edwards would say the freedom of the will. But both of those books say the same thing. I always thought it would be fun to have like a theology class and, and say the two books we're going to read. So we, you know, we want to be well balanced on this. Is bondage of the will and the freedom of the will. But if you read both books, they say the same thing. Because what they're after is this. Edwards says, yeah, you're free to choose whatever you want. But what do you want? You're, you're dialed into sin. It might be different sins, it might be different rebellion, but you're just, that's what you want. And so Luther says, you're in bondage, you can't choose the good, you can't choose Christ, apart from there being a regeneration of the heart. God must cause you to be born again in order to see and enter the kingdom of God. Here are two takeaways that I want everyone to leave here with today. First is this, God's word must be the standard for our understanding of who God is and what is considered right and just. Righteousness and justice must be defined as God defines it. And we must receive whatever God has said in his word. That is what's true. So God's word must be the standard for our understanding of who God is and what he does. And that what he does is right and just. Secondly, God's will is completely free. God has utterly free will. He does whatever he pleases. And all that he does is right. Robert Mount summarizes my counsel to you very well. He says, it's important to build one's theology not on personal perceptions of what ought to be, but upon the biblical revelation of the character and purpose of God. He's saying, don't build your theology based upon your presuppositions and ideas of what you think it should be like, but allow what God has revealed to be true to shape your theology and the foundation of what you believe. Fundamental to God is the revelation of his glory and the proclamation of his name. He accomplishes this both by showing mercy and by hardening. What is God after? To display his power and to make his name known. And he does that both through showing mercy to people who don't deserve it and hardening those who do. He's not engaged in anything in just either way. He's free. He's sovereign. Anyone who criticizes God for his choices betrays the fact that they view salvation as something that God ought to bestow on all equally as some sort of obligation. Here arising from one of man's fundamental problems, his pursuit of autonomy. If there was ever a passage that emphatically denied human autonomy and free will of man, it's this one. And yet some are so committed to the concept that even with this passage staring them in the face, they deny it. I, I'm going to close with this wonderful counsel from Robert Haldane. It's a, a medium-sized paragraph. Listen to what he had to say. The unbelieving heart of man will revolt, and his ingenuity may invent expedients to soften this explicit declaration, but it never can be successfully evaded. All the shifts of sophistry will never be able fairly or even plausibly to explain this language in a sense that will not testify the sovereignty of God. If we cannot fathom this depth in the divine counsels, still let us be certain that what God says is true and must be received by us. You know what he's saying? If you don't get it, fine. But don't make the reason that you don't get it be the reason why you don't receive it. A thing may be true, yet utterly inexplicable. God's declaration is perfectly sufficient for the belief of anything which he testifies. Our reception of it does not imply that we know the grounds or the nature of its truth. We receive it, not because we can explain how it is true, but because we know that God cannot lie.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come upon a passage this morning which I know just like grinds at the very like core of the philosophy of this age. It grates at human autonomy because it says you're in charge, not we. It exalts you as all-powerful and great, and yet we're still held responsible for sin. And that's one of those things that for the, for the, the human mind and uh, psychology, we just grate against that idea. And yet that's what you've revealed. Or there is certainly mystery to this. We, we, we probably can't, you know, here describe exactly the interactions of how this all plays out where Pharaoh was responsible for, his, for hardening his heart, and yet you're the one behind it all the time, all the while. And yet, your word clearly declares that. I pray, Lord, that we would find ourselves to be consistent in our Christianity, that we, we trust what your word says about salvation, about the rescue of sinners, then we should also trust what your word says about reprobation, about condemnation. Remind us that we're all, no one, none of us are owed or deserving of salvation. We all have earned for ourselves the wages of sin is death. We deserve eternal judgment. And so may it be all the more humbling as we contemplate this reality that you then, out of your totally free will, would choose to save and rescue sinners. Thank you for doing that. And thank you, Lord, that even here today, there might be someone who right now has been under the tyranny of death and, and sin, and yet if they'll call in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, they can be saved. Because you're not only a holy God who is full of righteous wrath, but also a loving and gracious God who is full of mercy and compassion. There'll be times in which we don't understand, you know, here on, uh, on this planet, how these things fit together, how your sovereignty attends to every situation that occurs. And yet, Lord, we trust you. You call us to simple trust, and that's, that's what we'll do. And we'll receive from you, and we'll rejoice in you, and we'll receive the medicine that a passage like this is meant to provide. If nothing else, just humbling us before you. We thank you, Lord, for the community of saints that you've made here at this church. I pray that you would be honored and, and glorified by the way in which we walk out from this place. Thank you that you have made much of your name and that we're still talking about the Exodus account today. May we see our greatest purpose in proclaiming your name to others that they might come to know Christ as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.